This is ATM Storytellers, a storytelling adventure brought to you by Across the Margin and ATM Media. In this podcast, you will hear stories that were, or will be, published at Across the Margin, read by the authors themselves. This podcast belongs to the writers and authors who bless our pages with their cunning wordplay and meticulously crafted stories. While you can take in these stories at the webzine, ATM Storytellers offers an opportunity for the listeners to sit back and let the stories wash over them in the tone and fashion that the author intended. Here, stories come to life in a way that can never happen on your laptop, tablet, or smartphone. Here, these stories truly cross the margin and take flight. First up in this fourth episode of season two is a story we share with a heavy heart as the author is no longer with us. A story wherein the fall of communism offers an immigrant a space in time to heed their calling, that of a caregiver. A short story that ultimately asks, who is it that helps the helpers? Rima Kranitz, Mount Olympus, read in loving tribute by her dear friend, Stella Hayes. And stay tuned, for that is followed by a short story about how a crisis can yield clarity, how rejection can offer an opportunity for renewal and to prompt us to say the things we think but keep within us. One Brick Missing by Chris Parent. Here is Mount Olympus by Rima Kranit. Jerry knew that he would be out of a job before the day was over. He stood with his hands behind his back, dressed in a dark suit and a new silk tie that hung loose around his neck. Michael's wife had given it to him as a gift. He was out of place amongst all of the unfamiliar faces that were swollen by the passing of time and smoothed over with the crafty needles of Botox. After all, this was not his relative to mourn. He was merely there to do his duty. Declining the invitation would have been disrespectful. His tall frame with wide shoulders and muscular back stood out from the rest of the guests who, with the exception of the immediate family, were at least 10 years his senior. He was restless and wished that he could make small talk with someone, but although everyone spoke his native tongue, nobody approached him. His gaze fell on the portrait leaning against a black easel on the stage. Michael smiled at him in bright Kodachrome, his hand propped against his once supple, round cheek as if he were deep in thought. Jerry would only remember him as large, heavy, and bedridden, a man who did not resist and did not speak and thus made his chores less burdensome. A man whose yielding, immobile body would turn in the middle of the night, protecting it from deep, festering wounds that would otherwise form and eat away at the delicate fibers of his skin. One night to the left, one night to the right. He wondered if one day he would be mute and misunderstood, a living cadaver to be wrestled, being spoken of while lay absent, unable to interrupt, disagree, a cry out of pain. His eyes spontaneously filled with tears. The rabbi appeared, quieting the rustling of feet and whispering, enveloping the room 
in a reticent lull. Jerry found himself sitting amongst the family members, surrounded by grieving aunts and uncles, cousins, children, grandchildren, and the inconsolable widow of the man frozen in a smile, looking down at them all. We are here to celebrate the life of Michael, he who is now in the Holy Land. Jerry was not Jewish, but the yarmulke balancing precariously on his head gave him a sense of responsibility, and so he sat poised and attentive. Michael was a good man, a loving husband and father, a provider for his family, an unusually generous man. May the ground be a bed of feathers for him. Jerry was familiar with this expression, but surprised that a rabbi would use it at such a formal gathering. He thought it as a provincial Russian colloquialism used when speaking of the deceased, but found it meaning to be absurd. How could the ground be anything but damp and filled with worms? How could it give comfort when it was dense and rough to the touch? He knew the ground well, the dirt and the romantic visions of motherland, which kept the farmers plowing and the agricultural mill churning. In the Ukraine, Jerry had grown tomatoes with his brother to supplement his income from the railroad. To others in the countryside, the earth was a metaphor for rebirth, but Jerry saw it only as something practical, a source of nutriment and a place to hide things that should be kept out of sight. The rabbi motioned to Rabbi Michael's wife. Jerry hoped her speech would take too long as he was already looking forward to the buffet, which he knew would follow. She read from a sheet of paper into the microphone, her small voice crackling with emotion. Initially speaking in a stunted English, she gave into her frustration and switched to Russian. Her speech was a dramatic retelling of a shared life, a courtship, and how many years earlier her husband's emotional strength had sustained her through the time as newly disoriented immigrants in the United States. Finally, I would like to thank Yuri for his priceless contribution and for his efforts in keeping Michael with us these past two years. Thank you. Yuri, Michael, appreciated everything you did for him, just as we all did. Thank you. Jerry flinched, caught off guard by the sound of his name. Yuri, who in America became Jerry, saw himself as a particularly sensitive and caring individual. One who had a very clear idea of right and wrong. Yet he seemed the role of caregiver, mainly because his lack of language skills limited him to doing what the non-English speaking Russian community needed, assisting in the tedious process of dying, which did not call for excellent communication skills, but a strong back and stable nerves. All eyes seemed to shift to look at Jerry Even the people in the back rows leaned forward to see the subject of such heartfelt gratitude. He awkwardly scanned the solemn faces, which seemed to take on a kinder, softer glow. Filled with pride and governed by his superstitious nature, he suddenly felt that he had been chosen, endowed 
by higher power to be a guardian, to protect those weaker than himself, and that he was indeed a righteous man. Because death was inevitable and a palpable element of his occupation, Jerry was particularly aware of his mortality and of the time spent alone, away from his family and all the things that were dear to him. Hidden in the circumscribed hills of Mount Olympus, surrounded by opulence and fenced in by thick hedges, trimmed to maniacal perfection, he knew that he was not living his own life, but stagnating in someone else's, lured by the occasional sound of children's laughter or music coming from the adjoining property. He would try to peer through the dense shrubbery into the neighbor's backyard to escape the unnatural stillness of his habitat. He missed his wife and his native city of Zaporozhia, but most of all, he missed seeing the clouds coverage on the horizon over the river Dnieper, the floating tapestries that to him resembled nights or the remains of battleship, burning forests or a field of sunflowers. He could spend hours mesmerized by the slow motion of air and water. His greatest pleasure came from his weekend fishing trips when he was out on the water in time to watch the sunrise and marvel at the thick regal forest surrounding him. In the bark of the trees, he saw a reflection of his skin now etched with the deposits of time. In the gnarled, craggly branches, his hands dry and calloused from years of working on the railroad, he said, immobile, gently tugging his fishing line with the agile flick of his wrist and listening to water lapping at the sides of his modest wooden boat, lulled into idleness by the swaying movement of the current below. Jerry pledged complete devotion to his motherland and to its people, his heart bursting with something beyond love, a sentiment that even he could not understand. Those outings ignited in him a state of well-being that he could only explain as mystical and that he could not do without. The fall of communism unhinged his life. The startling abundance of opportunity led to a new unfamiliar problem. What to do with all this freedom? Why the intellectuals starved, trying to reason through the unfamiliar reality of their daily existence, Jerry instantly understood that this space and time was like a fotochka, a small window. All it took was a change, all direction, and the wind would swing it shut once again. Later in the United States, he recounted his many schemes to anyone who would listen as proof of his astute nature and perseverance. The profitable of all of his endeavors during that time of life was the sale and distribution of cognac. I worked out every detail, he would explain. The barrels of liquor were hidden in my garage. I had labels printed, bought beautiful glass bottles and even placed a hot wax seal on the front to make it look more expensive and comparable to the authentic product 
they sell in the liquor stores in the city. People went mad for it. Now, every time there was a special occasion, they came to me for their liquor supply. They gave my bottles as gifts and because it really was good quality. They came back again and again. My luck is that everyone in our corner of the earth loves to drink. There are more alcoholics than crooks in our town. Once they figured out where to go, they would come find me even in the middle of the night, climb into the garage, pay me to drink directly from the barrels. They would even come with their own mugs. That's how desperate they were to get their fix. So what? I didn't care. I sold to everyone. I didn't discriminate. Money is money. I am a simple man, a working man. Do you think all those illegal dealings didn't fill me with fear? Of course they did. To the very bone. I drove my covered van at night with crates of bottle cognac in the back covered by a canvas throw. I always took my wife with me so as not to raise any suspicion. Two married people who get lost on a dark back road. It made more sense than a single guy driving in the dead of night through the empty countryside. You had to be smart. You had to be ready for anything. You had to always have a plan, an explanation for what you were doing in any particular place and time. I drove slow so that the bottles wouldn't rattle. A menacing sky, the color of freshly picked blueberries sus suspended above us. I remember leaning out of the window, my heart pounding so that I almost fainted. I breathed in the fresh air and slowly I came back to myself. We were all taking a risk. If they caught us, it meant going to prison. But that's just how well we lived. We risked so we could have a new pair of boots for the winter. The rabbi motioned for, for everyone to rise and with a lyrical prayer on his lips, he ushered the guests outside to the burial site. Jerry marveled at the theatrics of it all as he watched the guests brush past to take their places. And it occurred to him that this was a node to the staggering power of death that bereaved an inquisitive gathering gathered under a canopy to pay their respects and to observe the youthful rabbi adored by his James Bond good looks as he recited the mourner Kaddish. Like all citizens of the ex-Soviet Union, Jerry was an atheist. More than the power of God, he believed in destiny and perhaps a bit of luck. As a child, he was taught that certain invisible entities wield their mystic powers over the living and not to question how or why. One by one, the mourners approached the coffin, being lowered into the awaiting cavity, its smooth lacquered surface deflecting the rays of the sun. To the side of the open grave, there was a mound of freshly removed earth with a shovel planted firmly in the middle. As for the Jewish tradition, each mourner was to throw a shovel of dirt on the deceased. Jerry intentionally backed away, not wanting his ears to resonate with the thump of the heavy earth 
hitting the casket, a sound that echoed with emptiness and loss. This reverberation of life's end of the soil's compactness, layer upon layer, pushing the dead into the very fibers of the earth, had a profoundly disturbing effect on him. He had been a witness to many such ceremonies, and every time had refused to partake in the tradition, which at his view disrespected the dead by placating the vanity of the living. The buffet was held at Crystal, a popular venue in West Hollywood. Jerry had no intentions of socializing with anyone. He was there exclusively to seek out the consolation of food as it brought temporary relief from his permanent state of anxiety. He filled his plate more than once with dishes like blini, piraschki, jarkoye, borscht, and an array of cold and hot appetizers, dishes whose names were familiar, but once in his mouth tasted foreign. The borscht he made back home was rich with beef and bone marrow. It was overflowing with cabbage, its color a blood red from freshly grown beets. Here it looked a transparent watery pink with thin strips of meat brushing against the inner rim of his white porcelain plate. He wanted to add a spoonful of sour cream to make up for its lack of substance, but that too fell short of the heavy, creamy, rich texture that he so yearned for. He sat alone, absorbed by his meal, trying to consume as much as he body would allow. He didn't care if people looked at him or passed him. He did not mind being unseen, hovering over his half-empty plate. He reached for several thick slices of black bread. Is everything all right? Did you have enough to eat? Michael's wife ran her hand up and down Jerry's back in a soothing gesture of affection, too distracted by his own thoughts to have noticed her small figure approaching. Jerry observed that she looked fragile and unkempt. Her dress was too tight for someone her age, her eyeliner smeared from crying. All good, of course. Thank you, he replied. Shortly after Jerry rose from the table, sluggishly drifted through the banquet hall and overcome with the gravity of sleep, made his way through the Hollywood Hills to Michael's house on Mount Olympus for the last time. The narrow winding road lined with trees seemed unusually long and laborious. Once there, he took a nap and later in the evening packed up his things and emptied out the quarters that were his home for the last two years. In the morning, he would load all of the plastic bags filled with transient living into his car and drive off. He had nowhere to go, no plans, and no new employment.
One Brick Missing by Chris Parent. The news came as a curt text for which my wife later apologized. Denied. My daughter, Madeline, had been rejected by her dream stool. The same college my wife and I had attended. Notre Dame. The message was gracious and even referenced how difficult this was considering that Madeline was a legacy. But it was still a paragraph and essentially said 18 years of dreams, late night study sessions, SAT prep work, and countless hours of extracurricular activities came down to not being good enough. And that was it, final answer. It is hard to judge the impetus for another's grief. I have experienced the loss of a parent, a friend, and countless pets. I know what sadness feels like, and there is no feeling of grief like seeing your child suffer. It is a gut-wrenching feeling of helplessness. Those at work do not understand the complexity of the pain. Words of encouragement, hey, there are other places, she'll get in elsewhere, fell on deaf ears. For me, there was only one Notre Dame. Others took a different tack. So does that mean you're not gonna root for the football team this year? To which my response was less cordial. Throughout your life, you want to tell your children that they can do anything and be anything and that they should dream big. In the back of your mind though, you know that lives are filled with more rejection than success and that coping with adversity is the greatest tool you can have in your personal workshop. Madeline ultimately survived the pain. She recovered and landed at a great stool. This is Madeline's story, my wife cautioned me, and she is right. Madeline has a story to tell, and I looked forward to reading it one day. It will be a, a remarkable story of redemption and how rejection doesn't have to take your soul along for the ride downhill to depression. My story is a different one. My recovery started slowly, perhaps because I lived the dream for longer and Notre Dame had always been a part of my DNA. Madeline was born a year after my wife and I graduated from Notre Dame Law School. Her first onesie was emblazoned with Notre Dame on it. Class of 2023 said another one, a milestone so far away that it seemed impossible to conceive, a lifetime of memories to be made as we shaped and molded this speck of a person. My own parents had no connection to Notre Dame. My father took me to the Notre Dame Georgia Tech football game when I was six while we lived briefly in Atlanta. My passion for the Fighting Irish only swelled as we dodged fish and whiskey bottles that were hurled at us during the Notre Dame victory. My father was a fighter, but he was smart enough to know not to grapple with an army of drunk fans who had the foresight to pack carp in their coolers. Throughout my childhood, the place remained a mystery, an Oz that only revealed itself on television and in the myths of the books I read. When I got to high school, I learned that my prowess in an obscure sport, lacrosse, at the time would earn me attention from a number of schools, including Notre Dame. I visited the land of Oz and my fate was set. My father's pride was only matched by his disappointment that Georgia Tech did not have a Division I lacrosse team. He carried grudges. My decision to return to Notre Dame for law school was not an easy one. 
as I thought the experience would taint the remarkable one I had as an undergrad. While living in Washington, D.C., I attended a speech by the sports agent, Lee Steinberg, who was the influence for Jerry Maguire, a movie that had just released starring Tom Cruise. I met him after the lecture and we chatted briefly as he was gracious with his time. He implored me to, tend, to attend Notre Dame because that's where Jerry went, referencing the Notre Dame logo conspicuous on McGuire's shirt as he writes his pivotal mission statement, the things we think and do not say, which sets Jerry on a path of self-discovery after the proclamation causes him to lose his job. I earned my second degree from Notre Dame fell in love along the way, and had Madeline soon after. My wife and I never overtly pushed for Madeline to love Notre Dame as we did. It just happened. My best friends were graduates, and I stayed in touch with many, attending weddings and birthday parties in the various cities across the U.S. where they resided. Notre Dame football afternoons were sacred. Madeline and her younger sister learned swear words from my impulsive reaction to what I considered imprudent coaching decisions. All the while, Madeline was developing into a strong student. She worked hard, captained her lacrosse team, starred in the school play, volunteered, earned straight A's, and saw things that other children her age did not. During the summer between her junior and senior years of high school, we created a list of potential co college options. But who were we fooling? Notre Dame was her destiny, and she had earned it. The members of the admissions committee thought differently, and I did not embrace their decision. I did not handle the rejection well, especially after fundraising emails started trickling in. I am my father's son. Days were filled with anger, sadness, envy, and mostly second-guessing. The news came at the same time as the infamous Varsity Blues college admission scandal. I hit rock bottom when I read of Felicity Huffman's plea deal, a $30,000 fine, 14 days in prison, and 250 hours of community service, and thought to myself, well, that doesn't seem so bad considering her kid got in. My wife's frustration simmered, but she moved on. She is a better person than me. One night, I again raised the topic about which I was obsessed, and she asked, what do you want them to do? What would heal the wounds? It was a good question, short of an email saying, sorry, we were mistaken. We got Madeline confused with another child. I knew there was nothing. It was my problem that I could not accept the finality. The wounds remained open after discovering the source that had catapulted me into the situation 18 years ago. While surfing the internet, I landed on an article referencing the mission statement from Jerry Maguire. The director and writer of the movie, Cameron Crowe, had uploaded the full The Things We Think and Do Not Say mission statement onto his site, the theuncool.com. I studied the piece as if I was a, a historian uncovering a lost manuscript. The movie, in many ways, had shaped my life. One passage reads as if McGuire is talking directly to Notre Dame. People always respond best to personal attention. 
it is the simplest and easiest truth to forget. We must crack open the tightly clenched fist of commerce and give a little back for the greater good. Eventually, revenues will, will be the same and that goodness will be infectious. We will have taken our number oneness and turned it into something greater and eventually smaller will become bigger in every way and especially in our hearts. A week after my wife challenged me, I returned with a prescription. A phone call, I said, or a personal email. Just something to know that this was a difficult decision and that they recognized the pain it caused. It would be difficult, I understand that, for them and me, but I would have appreciated the personal attention. During the winter break of her freshman year, Madeline returned to, to Zurich, the city our family now called home. Madeline and I went to a bar called the Old Crow. She was 18 and, and of legal age in Switzerland. Madeline and I enjoyed our conversation as we always did. We navigated topics ranging from the serious to the mundane. We danced around Notre Dame. And after ordering my second gin and tonic, I asked a question that I'd thought about since the, that fateful day in April. Is there any way you might want to transfer to Notre Dame? No, she said emphatically. No, not at all. I'm happy. Okay, I replied. That's great. I support your decision. But the conversation was not over. Are you though? Madeline asked after a long pause. Are you happy with that? Of course, I said. She paused and then offered the question that had been lingering in her own mind since April. But are you still proud of me? Did I disappoint you? Madeline asked. The accolades bestowed on the old crow are well-deserved. It is a phenomenal bar and I recommend it highly. And if you had walked into the establishment on that evening, you'd have found a middle-aged man clutching his gin and tonic and beginning to cry shamelessly. I realized then that for Madeline, it was about more than Notre Dame. My wife was right. My story was not her story. In Madeline's eyes, the rejection from Notre Dame was not only from an institution, but from us. My despondency, my anger, only exacerbated that feeling of rejection. For eight months, she had thought of herself is not good enough, that she had fallen short in her lifelong desire to demonstrate that her dreams were the same as ours. I had failed to heed the advice of Jerry Maguire and share the words we as parents think, but do not say, at least often enough. You are good, you are special, you make us so proud. Crisis can yield clarity. It can offer a chance of rebirth and renewal, a cleansing of the mind and spirit. My daughter's rejection was a gift, one granted I would have likely returned had I been given the opportunity. It made me realize that I'm not defined by institutions regardless of the tremendous influence they may have had on me. I value the worth of the individual and have been forever shaped by the vast number of places I have visited people I've met, and books that I've read. 
the Notre Dame campus remains a magnificent place that I will forever cherish. But Notre Dame was never about buildings. People are the bricks of the institution. Notre Dame was built brick by brick by the people who called the campus home. I am proud to have contributed a brick, a small one in its vast universe. Only now when I look back, it is with a sadness that there is one brick missing. But I am at least buoyed by the thought that it lies elsewhere and is part of something different, something that is only Madeline's. <laughs>